Moms who weren't here last week, it may be good to go back and you can find last week's message online. And the reason I say that, Hannah, what a mother, a woman of faith who prayed for that child Samuel. And the Lord, you know, answered her prayer and she offered that child up. Do you remember the blank page? Anybody here last week? The blank page. Offer up that blank page. Lord, here's how I would fill in the blank on my kid's life. But I'm going to let you be the author of that kid's story. I can't even run my own life. What makes me think I could play God and fill in all the blanks of that kid's life? So I'm going to leave that in your hands. So I want us to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3 today and give you a little context. You know, the story of 1 and 2 Samuel is not just about Hannah in particular, and it's really not just for mothers. Not just for those who've dealt like Hannah with the pain of infertility and barrenness, but for anybody in pain. And for anybody in pain, to catch you up, I would say so far, First and Second Samuel's taught us at least three things. Uh, the first is God's power begins in your moment of total inadequacy. That's where God's power begins. At your point of total inability, don't be surprised if, if, if as you look back on your life, that's the moment where God's power really flexed his muscle, isn't it? Whether it's barren, Hara, barren Hannah or whether it's the children of Israel who were fruitless in fulfilling the mission God gave, whether it's your own salvation when you had no hope in your weakness, that's where God proved himself strong. Uh, for what it's worth, for anyone who is going through suffering or you have a loved one who's going through suffering, the story of Hannah, can you imagine that barrenness, that, that uh, uh, getting, what was uh, her rival's name, Penina, constantly, you know, uh, rubbing it in your face that she had lots of children and you, Hannah, you got no children, all that suffering. At some point, surely she must have cried out, why God? This is a word for anybody in suffering, straight out of First and Second Samuel, God Always, always, always. There is always a reason for your suffering. Do not expect to get to know that reason in your lifetime. There's always a reason for your suffering. And the way I see it, if you can get to figure out about 10% of what God was up to, you're doing great. You're not going to know. How many of you, I, I was... I was so moved by Hannah's story last week, even as I was preparing it, just thinking about her pain and her suffering. Why God? But she was so faithful. Can you imagine? Do you think Hannah had any idea? Do you think she had any idea? Part of her suffering was so that 3,000 years later in a little town called Coleman, Alabama, people would be blessed by her story. Now, do you think that went through her mind? As she's praying, why God? Well, there's this thing called North America you don't know about yet. Uh... She could have never traced those dots to Coleman, Alabama. But her suffering is part of the tapestry God has woven to get all the way to us today. So do not expect to find out in your lifetime. I'm sorry if you're disappointed that you're going to get to see everything God was doing in your lifetime. On the other side of glory, we will understand that the old hymn says, better by and by. And I want you to notice how much God loves broken and barren people Poor people. God, First Samuel shows us God loves the people that the world calls losers. God doesn't call them losers. God loves them incredibly. Okay. Well, Samuel now has been left at the temple. He's, uh, uh, Hannah comes and visits him uh, on her yearly visit. And it's so tender. You read there in chapter 2. She makes uh, uh, you know, the, the, the robes as the boy grows. He could be about 12 years old, maybe a teenager. He's been serving in the temple with Eli. And Eli's two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, I, these guys, they were quote 
quote-unquote priests, but they were not worthy of that name at all. They were abusing their status as priests, committing acts of sexual immorality right there in the tabernacle. And basically, they were embezzling the offerings that were supposed to be devoted to God. They were fattening themselves with that. So things are not good. And verses 1 through 3 describe what the main problem is. And I want you to see 1 Samuel 3, these verses. uh, Notice, it may not be what we think is the main problem. I want you to notice, the Bible sometimes diagnoses our most critical need differently than the way we might diagnose our most critical need. Here we go, verse one. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. You see that? There it is, right off the bat. The central concern in the scripture, the red alert, the siren is the word of the Lord was rare, literally precious, as in there's precious few words of the Lord. Now, let's just stop. Let me ask you point blank. Is that what you would point to as the chief malady in your life? Is that what you would point to? In the midst of a family drama or a marriage breakdown or at work there's all this drama or there's illness or there's grief, would you say the real problem, the underlying problem, the problem beneath the problem is that the word of the Lord is rare in my marriage. The word of the Lord is rare in my workplace. The word of the Lord is rare in my life. Would, you, would, would that ever come up as the chief diagnosis? The Bible says that's the thing to pay attention. That's the big problem. I don't know that I would say that. I like to think I would, but if I'm honest, I think my list would be something like this. Okay, Lord, here's my priorities. Here's my prayer. Uh, start at good health. You know, my chief concern is my, my, you know, my illnesses or my, my troubles. That, if you could just get that solved, that would be the chief problem. The Bible says no, it's that the word of the Lord is rare. Well, or, or I might say, no, 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 I, I need to prosper in some way, whether it's anxiety, whether it's anxiety about grades or sports or getting into a good college or getting a good job or keeping a good job or the retirement and the, and the markets and all that. No. No, the underlying problem, the word of the Lord, rare. Oh, well, no, it's, my issues are about relationships. You know, I just got all this drama in my life and I got, you know, and, 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 and this one said this and that one said this and you won't believe what they say on social media. That, that's my real problem is my significance. I have all this anxiety. This passage seems to indicate that, no, beneath all that, God is meeting a more fundamental need, the presence of his word. That's the thing to be scared of, is the removal of God's word, if the word of God is rare in your life. And and you say, Tom, are are you making all this up? No, look at the way the chapter is framed. The problem is presented in verse 1, and this is kind of a spoiler alert, but go to the end of the chapter, say around verse 19. Look what happens. The word begins with, the word of the Lord was rare, and then after this calling of Samuel, verse 19 says, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that's just shorthand from a northernmost city to a southernmost city, all of Israel knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. See that? The, the, the word of God, the vision is dwelling among the people again. There is hope. Now, I can't help but think that in 2022, a text like this loses some of its force because we don't fear a, a, a can I call it a word of God famine, like we should. Without the word of God, God's people perish. Remember when Moses 
told the children of Israel in Deuteronomy as they're going into the promised land. He says, for these words are not meaningless words, but they are to you your life, and by them you will live. The absence of God's word leads to spiritual blindness and darkness, which are both evocatively foreshadowed in verse two. Look at this, all this imagery in one through three. If you, let's, go back, let's go back to the beginning. So, so uh, verse two, at that time, right? So the word of the Lord was rare. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. And of course, there's layers to this. He is physically growing old and blind, but he was blind, wasn't he? He was blind to his own son's sin. He turned a blind eye to what his boys, Hophni and Phinehas, were making a mockery of everything. He was so spiritually unable to perceive things that last week he thought this praying woman, he couldn't tell the difference between a praying woman and a a drunken woman. So there's all these layers of spiritual blindness. The word of God is rare. It's the blind leading the blind. I came up in the golden age of contemporary Christian music, the 90s. And one of my favorite bands is The Waiting, talking about this. Shepherd's staves are crooked, leading every crooked way. All the sheep lock their doors. Yeah, they're pulling down their shades. The faithful looking in the mirror, the faithful growing old and gray. Is there any hope? You might even say there was a spiritual famine, people starving for the word of God. You know, that's how the prophet Amos, that's how he describes when the word of the Lord is rare. Look what Amos ate. 11 and 12 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And so these people, they shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Let me ask you, does a spiritual famine, does an absence of the word of the Lord, does it scare you? Part of the reason famine is not scary to us, even a physical famine, is because uh, 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 we, we don't really you know, draw the connection that ultimately uh, farms make our food, but we don't starve immediately. If there's a famine or there's a drought, we won't feel the effects of that for months to come, so we don't dread it like we should. Like the little girl who once said, well, if there's no farms, that's no problem. I'll just get my food from Publix. Well, (laughs) you're not really thinking this through. In the same way, if the word of God is rare, you may not feel the effects today. You may not feel the effects next week. But we should fear a rarity of the word of God in our life. Now, there's, of course, a couple reasons why you can't hear, why you can't hear anything. One is it's too quiet, right? People need to speak up. Everybody's mumbling. I said everybody's mumbling. So, you know, and one is it's too quiet. And I think that's the issue here is their ears were so stopped up with sin. But the other reason you can't hear something is when everything else is too loud. I think the problem back then was uh, everybody's ears were stopped up to the word of God and it was too quiet. I wonder if our problem today is we can't hear the word of God because everything else is too loud. There's all this shouting everywhere. Every, the noise gets drowned out. You can't tell what's true. You can't, you know, how, I, I was talking to my, Kids, this week, I don't, I don't know how you're going to discern what's true and what's not in your world growing up. But I have an idea, right? Right? Why? It, this, is, this is what cuts through the noise, but there's so much noise. It is possible to have a Bible, and what an honor if you have a Bible. What a privilege. You know, it's only been for 400 years a preacher could say, turn in your Bibles, right? 
to have a copy of the scripture. I hope you treasure it. I hope you treasure the word of the Lord. But it is possible that, 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 that you can gorge on content but be starving for truth. You can be filled to the point of sick with infotainment but utterly malnourished from a word from God. So let me ask you, is the word of the Lord rare in your life? If so, correct that today. They're in a time of spiritual darkness. I suppose if I were, last week I had three scenes and some application. Today, two scenes and an application. This would be scene one, the silence. The silence, spiritual darkness, people starving for a word from God. And in the silence, we get a little sliver of hope. In all this spiritual darkness, look at verse three. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Think about it. The lamp of God was supposed to be lit all night long and it would burn all night long and fade out just about the time of dawn so that there would always be light in the house of the Lord. And the ark of the Lord was kept at Shiloh. This symbolizes his, pres- his presence, right? They had the tablets in there. They had the, 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 the Ten Commandments were in there. And so they, this symbolizes the presence of the Lord. And it tells us, He's telling us in verse 3, the writer's telling us, and this is what great, obviously it's the inspired word of God. It's also exquisite storytelling because great storytellers don't just tell you, they show you. So he's time stamping it. He's saying, you know that it's in the wee hours of the morning because the lamp of God had not yet gone out. So it's not yet dawn. But how can you read this and not see a metaphor that the lamp of God had not yet gone out? Things looked hopeless. There was silence. There was darkness. But there's a little sliver of hope. Why? It's not too late. It's not too late. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. Who's the lamp of God? Little Samuel. This little boy. In the midst of all this wickedness and darkness, little Samuel with his praying mama is still a sliver of hope for the people of God. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. For anybody who hears my voice, if you're watching this online, you've given up on church, you've given up on God, all the, everything I, I, I said in that song, you said, yeah, that's exactly right. The, 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 the shepherd's staves are crooked. You can't trust the preachers. You can't trust churches. The, 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 the sheep are pulling down their shades and they're locking their doors and everybody's leading their own crooked way. The faithful looking in the mirror, but the faithful are, are, are growing old and gray. Is there any hope? Listen, if you're not dead, God's not done. He has a purpose for you in your life. It is not too late. One day it will be. But for everybody who feels that way, that song goes on to say, uh, you know, the faithful growing old in grace is but, but. But I look at you. Your eyes are clear and bright. I see your face. It's an amazing sight. Your glory, Lord, is still a burning light a light that all our faithless hands could never dim. Get over the crowd and look to God. The lamp of God is not yet burned out. So scene one, the silence. Scene two, the silence is broken. And it is broken in one of the most memorable passages in the entire book of 1 Samuel. It's a delightful story. Look at verse four. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. Now, quite naturally, here, yay. I mean, that's odd. Here I am. Who's he calling to? Well, he's not calling to the Lord. He's calling to Eli. Because if he hears a voice in the middle of the night, old Eli apparently needed a lot of help most nights. And so the Lord called, but he obviously thinks it's, it's Eli. Here I am. He doesn't hear anything, so he gets out of bed. Verse 5. And he ran to Eli. Here I am, for you called me. 
Uh, you want to follow up on the whole, you know, Samuel thing? Like, what, what do you need? But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. He thinks, well, that sure was odd. Maybe I'm imagining things. Verse 6, the Lord called again Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. He said, I did not call my son. Now you're, now you're messing with me. <laughs> no, lie down again. What's going on here? Now, listen, uh, do not be too hard on young Samuel. Don't ever forget a couple things. One, you know something. The narrator has given you information that Samuel doesn't have. It is invariably the case. We, we see here, right? The Lord called Samuel, and we laugh because he goes to Eli. Reality check, and be honest. How many times has the Lord called you and you went somewhere else? Now, let's don't point fingers at Samuel. Let's, be, let's have some mercy for young Samuel. Let's show some mercy to the lad because it was the Lord calling him, and we know that. And say, what do, you, how, do you think the Lord sounds like Eli? Well, that's just it. When you're in the middle of the story, when you're at the end of your story looking back after God's brought you through something, it's so easy to say, why don't you just have faith, you know? I always used to laugh when I'd go to singles ministry events, and the singles minister was married. And he's like, it happened. You're like, easy for you to say. <laughs> Once you're at the end of your journey, yeah, then you can look back and say, I don't understand. Why don't you just have faith? But life, you, only, you get to live it in the middle of your story. There's a lesson here. Everything's easy once you know the answer. So be merciful to those who don't yet know. I heard a preacher talking about this, give an illustration of a, years ago there was a, a hospital at a children's wing had installed intercom systems. And this way, it allowed, uh, instead of the doctor or the nurse having to go all the way to the room, they could just speak through the intercom. They had been using it for six months or a year, and so it was obvious to them. And, but there were little children, and uh, one little boy was alone in his room, and uh, the doctor uh, calls his name, and uh, uh, hey, uh, uh, Jason, and asked him a question, and he asked this little youngster named Jason, he asked him the question, and silence. He tries the intercom again, Jason, and calls him again. Third time, Jason, and finally, all the nurses and the doctor here. Okay, what do you want, Wall? <laughs> Bless his heart, Samuel can't figure out what's going on. It's easy. It's easy for us. It's obvious to us. Verse seven gives the explanation. No, no, no. Remember, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Ah. Now, this verse simply explains. It doesn't blame. This is entirely different. If you say, I've been reading through 1 Samuel, preacher. I did what you said. I've been reading through this. And that sounds familiar. It does. You're thinking of chapter 2, verse 12. That's, that's, that is almost how it describes those wicked sons of Eli. It says, they didn't know the Lord. Look at the difference. Uh, 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 chapter 2, verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli, you know, those, those worthless priests, they were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. What's the difference? One little word. Can you find it? The word is yet. The connotation here is that Eli's sons did not know the Lord because they had no desire to know the Lord. Samuel simply hadn't had a personal experience just yet. Very different. He did not yet know the Lord. And that explains why he wasn't able to really understand his voice. He didn't have that. I don't think it, I think it probably presses the text too far to say he was not yet converted. He was not yet a, a believer. But I think to say that he had not yet 
you know, Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. They not yet developed that discernment. So it makes sense. Verse 8, and the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, okay, right, I, here I am for you called me. Then Eli, even old blind Eli was not too slow to perceive himself that the Lord was calling the boy. Now, uh, this is an application because some of you, this will happen. It may happen today. You may have been in a church service where it's happened. Uh, uh, God was speaking to Samuel and he thought it was Eli. will be the case that you'll be here today or you'll be here on some sermon and um, you'll sense that someone's speaking to you and you will make the mistake that it's the preacher. I know that. People have said, it was like you were talking right at me, preacher. I said, well, then that's a good sign that I wasn't talking to you. Someone else was. Now, I praise God he was using me and that's a great blessing, but God is speaking to some of you. Don't mistake it and think it's me. When I said, if you've given up on God and you need to get back in and that pierced your heart, hey, that, that, it was the Lord. I can't tell you, this, this sounds like a, a, a preacher cliche. I'm here to tell you, I, I, don't, I don't do cliches and hackneyed, tired, old story. This one's true just because it's true. It sounds cliche because it happens. And I've talked to other preachers and they say the same thing. It has happened many, many, many times that someone will say to me, and the one thing you said that changed everything was da 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 and I'm going, that's awesome. I never said that. <laughs> What's happening there? To me, it's simple. The Holy Spirit is taking his word and applying it just to what people need in the right season, in the right moment, and he is speaking to them. God is speaking. And you say, well, that was just the preacher, or that was this Bible study teacher, or that was, you know, maybe, maybe indigestion. I don't know. But it's God speaking. So the Lord, finally, Eli says, Here, okay, I, I figured out what's going on. So Eli, verse 9 says, all right, he said to Samuel, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Got that? Got it, Samuel? So Samuel went and lay down in his place. You, you may notice uh, uh, Eli was off in the bedroom, and Samuel was laying down in the very center of the tabernacle at Shiloh. We would think Eli should be at the center of the action and Samuel should be off in the periphery. Perhaps the text is showing us there's about to be a transition as a new prophet and Samuel is taking Eli's place. Anyway, so verse 10, and the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Um, One day I'll preach a whole sermon on when God calls your name twice. It won't be this sermon, but uh, one day. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Did he say his right line? He was close. Left out a word, didn't he? What was he supposed to say? He was supposed to say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. He said, speak, your servant hears. So this is grace to everybody who feels like when it comes to all this religion stuff, they never get it right. Can I tell you something? Uh, God speaks anyway. He's not worried that you got all the words right. Besides, Samuel doesn't yet know the Lord, the Bible says. So how could he have said, speak, Lord, speak, your servant hears. So he gets this word from the Lord. And of course, it's a, it's a, it's a word of devastating judgment on Eli's sons. And here it's this transition to the role of prophet. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. <laughs> I'm sorry, that one always cracks me up. 
<laughs> like, why the two ear? Why not just say the ears of everyone? You know, well, for any one-eared people, I, you know, sorry. <laughs> this message is not just going to be a one-ear tingler. It's going to be a two-ear tingler. You understand? This is, this, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> the point is it's going to get your attention. It's going to rattle some nerves. He's saying, I'm saying that time's up on all this immorality. On that day, I'll fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God. He did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. I won't belabor this dreadful point, but suffice to say it is a dreadful thing indeed to fall into the hands of the living God. He's not to be trifled with. If you refuse the only means of salvation offered to you, if you reject, he can forgive you of any sin. Jesus said there's only one unforgivable sin. If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, which is to say, if you reject his plan of salvation, there's no salvation to be had. It's like sawing off the branch you're sitting on. If you reject his offer of grace, it's the only offer you have. And so to reject that, there can be no no amount of atoning or sacrifice. You've rejected the one thing that will save you. And the implication, of course, is clear. uh, uh, Samuel, you're going to have to tell Eli this. And, of course, it's a mark of grace in young Samuel's life that he doesn't want to do it. He he has that, uh, that great thing where he's willing to tell the truth, but he loves the people so much that he, does it and he doesn't look forward to it. Some people, I think they love the truth so much, they just hammer, you know, you know, some preachers, they hammer you, and you go, but do you, it's almost like, did you enjoy that? There should be tears in your eyes when you tell people things like, God will judge sin, and without Christ, you'll go to hell forever. There's no, it's a difficult truth, but of course, if you love people, you're also willing to share with them the truth. That's what we see in Samuel's life. Verse 15, you know, if you don't want to do something, remember, I mean, Samuel lay until morning because he's, you know, he's a teenager. Uh, but I think there's more than that. And normally he would have been up, right? Because before dawn, because you got to be ready to uh, deal with the lamp and, and do all, and he's, he opens the doors. That's what he says. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was the door opener. And, um, but it tells us the real reason why he slept in. Can't blame the fella for putting the covers back over his bed. And you know how it is when you got something you really don't want to do that day, you try to squeeze every snooze alarm button you can. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. In fact, I think he's opening the doors hoping to dodge Eli. Maybe he won't see me. I'll just stay here working the doors. But, Sam, but Eli called Samuel and uh, gave him no choice. Samuel, my son, he said, here I am. Eli said, what is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also. I think Eli had a hunch it was going to be bad news because he said, may God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me, from all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hid nothing from him. And Eli says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. This is either the resignation of the utterly hopeless or a resignation of surrender and hope. I like to think that it's a note of hope that he's saying, thy will be done. And the career of the prophet begins. And just like Samuel's opening doors, again, there's all these rich metaphors. He opened the door to a new era for Israel. He would be a kingmaker. He would anoint two kings and usher in a new chapter in salvation history. So scene one, the silence. Scene two, the silence broken. And we close with a couple words of application. And we'll be done. 
How do we apply this call narrative to our lives? Because it's, it's tricky. We don't stand in exactly Samuel's position, do we? Uh, for one thing, we're not being called to receive direct divine revelation in this way. Uh, for another thing, we have the written word of God, you know. I mean, can you imagine meeting Samuel in heaven one day and be like, what's all this business about not understanding when God speaks? Why didn't you just read 1 Samuel? I was writing 1 Samuel. Like, well, come on, right? So it's, it's, it's different. And we are not prophets in the same way Samuel was. So I, don't, I, I think it's too much to say, that's why I didn't want to make the whole point of the sermon, how to understand God's call in your life. As juicy as that would have been, how to hear God's voice, how to know in the middle of the night whether it's, you know, uh, did you have uh, some bad tacos or is uh, God trying to speak to you if you feel a quiver in your liver? How do you, you know, I, I really think that pushes it too far. And so I'll tell you what I tell youth groups every time I'm asked to speak to young people. You want to hear the voice of God? Oh, more than anything. You want to hear him speak? Oh, I'd give anything to hear him speak to me. You want to hear him speak to you directly? Yeah. Here's what you do. Tick to. Huh? 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 Any questions? And invariably some kid goes home like, mine's broken. I hear the ocean. The, uh, the point is God has spoken. In the 66 inspired books of the Old and New Testament, we have, and if you think, yeah, but I want to be like Abraham where I got to hear God directly. I want to be like Samuel who got to hear God say, Samuel, Samuel. Do you realize if you own this book, you have access to more word of God. This, these are words that have dripped straight from the lips of God. And do you realize Samuel and Moses and Abraham and Balaam and all the rest of them would have given anything to have what you have. They would trade with you to be able to hear in this way. So if you want to hear God's voice, I, I, I don't think, you know, the, 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 the point of the story is to say, well, you know, here's how he was able to perceive. But I do think there are nonetheless some principles to imitate. For example, if you want to hear from God, uh, the first thing is be obedient. <laughs> do you want to hear from God because you're curious or because you want to obey? If you want to hear from God because it would scratch an itch or satisfy a curi- uh, uh, some sort of curiosity, what? no, why, why? Why? <laughs> Can you imagine your kids coming to you? Hey, mom, dad, do you have any chores for me to do today? Well, that, you, well yeah, I mean, I, I guess if, if you wanted, if you want, feed the dog. That, yeah, that, that'd be great. It'd be a big help. Cool. I'm not going to feed the dog. I was just curious if you had any chores, and I want to know what they were so I could tell you no. Peace. How would you deal with that, Right? So if you're coming to the Lord going, I'm just, I'm curious. I want to know, you know, I'm in college. I want to know what am I supposed to major in? Do you? Do you? Because it seems to me a major, unless you're majoring in sinning 101 or something, it's a pretty much an amoral decision. I would say, what are you gifted at? And, you know, let's go. Oh, what you want is for God to write the exact script of everything you do so that if your life gets off track, you can sue him. See? So, so what you're really trying to do is outsource the responsibility for making tough decisions because decisions are tough, it's part of growing up. Okay, so you're just asking out of curiosity. But instead, if you come to the word of God with an obedient heart, a yielding heart, uh, J.D. Greer says, put your yes on the table, then talk. In other words, whatever it is, Lord, yes. Now speak, your servant listens. By the way, you know who he reminds you of? Who comes with this kind of faith and trust and childlike trust? You know who he reminds you of? His mama. Little Samuel didn't just appear in the book out of nowhere. He had a praying mama, didn't he? 
Be obedient. Be available. Speak, Lord. Your servant listens. Put your life and your family's life continually in places where they can be available to the word of God. Let me say it again. Get them in church. Be available. Speak, Lord. Your servant listens. Be available. Be willing to go. Eli actually turned out to be a pretty good spiritual guide uh, for all his faults when he finally dawned on him. A good spiritual friend will do that. Somebody who's really guiding you, they don't just lay a bunch of wisdom on you. What they say is, hey, where might the Lord be speaking here? And they guide you to listen to God. It's pretty good wisdom. Be available. And, and notice Samuel lay down in his place. Look, how about this one? Be quiet. Here's an application point. Be quiet. Be still. Samuel, if he says, he says if, okay, you're going to go hear from God. He doesn't say, go chase um, God, God. You know what? You might find him behind that lampstand. I bet if you'll go chase him around, open the doors, go run from Dan to Beersheba, and maybe you'll find him. What does he say? Go back and lie down at your place. Now, here's going to be some good news for everybody who struggles with God's will, for everybody who wonders. And we all wonder. Every Christian wonders, am I doing it the right way? Am I supposed to be going down this path? Every, for everyone who's ever worried about missing out on the will of God, for every Christian who thinks, what if I've missed it? What if I've missed my calling? What if I didn't get a calling? What if, how can I find my calling? What am I supposed to do to go find my calling? Listen to me carefully. Here's some good news. You do not have to go out and find your calling. If you stay obedient to what God has shown you to do, as best you can, you stay uh, 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 available to him, you're constantly in a place to hear God's word, the good news, you don't have to go find your calling, your calling will find you. You be obedient, you be available, calling will find you. So there are some things we can learn from his example, but in closing, the ultimate application, and really what I think 1 Samuel 3 is about, is not about Samuel's character. It's not about how Samuel acts, though certainly there's much we can learn. Ultimately, the passage is about God. What do these verses teach us about God? Musicians are going to come and help us. As, I, I just want to sort of almost devotionally reflect on these verses. What does this teach us about God? Here we come to a new step in how certainly in Samuel's life, and how Yahweh is going to deal with Israel. And here's what I love about this whole call narrative. God seems to be in no apparent hurry. You know, because you, you read a text like this, and you can't help, if you're like me, you can't help think like, well, I don't want to miss out on God's call. What if I'm doing it wrong? What if I'm not hearing for God? It, it seems that God is incredibly patient with this person who's obedient and available Here's what Dale Ralph Davis wrote. And when I read it, sometimes you read things, you just put the, you just put the book down. And it's like, it's like it hits you right between the eyes. Here's what he wrote. In this passage, God is not heaving an exasperated sigh. Don't you love that? Samuel. Samuel. God never heaves an exasperated sigh. He is not ready to berate Samuel for being so dense. He does not launch into a tirade about how that Samuel never gets anything right. Can I say all that again? God does not heave an exasperated sigh. He does not berate Samuel for being so dense. He does not launch into a tirade about how that Samuel never gets anything right. He just calls 
Some matters require time and patience. Oh, the heart of God that he'll meet you right where you're at. Because we think, well, I, I got I to gotta level up somehow. Samuel didn't go to God. If you look carefully at that verse, uh, 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 probably 10. Can you put verse, uh, verse 10 back up there? It was 10. Can, is it possible to, to go to verse 10? It says, the Lord God came and spoke that third time. Look, look, look. He came and stood. He didn't just speak. He came. The God of the universe comes into the rooms of 12-year-old guys, of ordinary people, of you and me. The God of the universe wants to speak to ordinary people. And, he were, and it's incredible, the grace he shows Samuel. Jesus said the same thing in John 16, 12. Jesus said, I have many more things to say to you, but you're not able to bear them now. So he doesn't, he's not gruff. He's not impatient. He's tender and works with us. The God of the universe walks into the rooms of ordinary people and speaks to them. How? Well, ultimately, he took that to the ultimate degree, didn't he? John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He speaks. It's His grace. We beheld His glory. So it is grace that breaks the silence of God. Don't let the Word of God become rare in your life. Be obedient. Be available. Be still. It's grace that broke the silence then. It's grace that will break the silence in your life today. And it's grace that invites you to take your place in his story. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. You spoke to Samuel. You speak still by your word going forth. Jesus, train our ears to better spiritually hear and discern the word you have for us. God, I pray for anybody who's challenged by this or convicted that today would be a day of great encouragement, not condemnation, but invitation. Thank you, Lord, that ultimately the story is not about our response. It's about a God who calls so tenderly, softly and tenderly, works with us, is patient with us, even when we go running off thinking it's other people talking to us or running here, there, you're patient with us to continue to call us. Oh, God, your grace is on every verse of this passage. So God, apply it to our hearts and grant that we too might hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.